If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Philippians. That's page 980 in the black chair Bibles or pew Bibles in front of you. Philippians chapter 1. So today we're going to begin a new expositional sermon series through the book of Philippians. Now, when we start a new book like this, there's all kinds of information that could be helpful for us to know, okay? For example, talking about Philippians, we could talk about the city of Philippi. That's who the Philippians were. They were the Christians living in a city called Philippi. We could talk about how the church in Philippi was the first Christian church that the Apostle Paul ever started in Europe. If you were to look at a modern map of where Philippi is, it would be in modern-day Greece. But back in the New Testament times, it was considered part of Macedonia. Some of you may remember from the book of Acts in chapter 16 when Paul had a vision of the man from Macedonia asking Paul to come over there and help them. Then they traveled over to Macedonia to preach the gospel. And then Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown in prison. We have the famous account of them singing prison songs or singing songs in prison and worshiping God. And then there's this earthquake and the prison is shaken and shackles fall off and they escape. In the process, the Philippian jailer is converted. We could talk a lot about how Paul wrote Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome probably sometime around 62 AD. And that's very important for us in our understanding of the book of Philippians. The fact that Paul writes what he writes while undergoing imprisonment for the gospel is significant and it will factor into how we understand the book of Philippians. But I don't wanna spend a lot of time on all of that introductory information on the book of Philippians. Anybody with a study Bible or the internet can get that kind of information, the background information on Philippi, the historical setting, all of that. If you don't have a study Bible, here's a shameless plug for a study Bible. The ESV study Bible is fantastic. The HCSB study Bible is fantastic, as I've said many times before. If, you want, if you're thinking about going to seminary, don't. Just get the ESV study Bible. Um, it pretty much is an, an, a seminary education in a book. And so um, if you don't have a study Bible, highly recommend it. You can read all about the historical context of the book of Philippians, the background. That stuff is important. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying we're not gonna spend a lot of time unpacking that today. We'll unpack it more as we work our way through Philippians because it will come up. My purpose today is not to give a bunch of background information. What I want to do is consider three themes of Philippians that I think will be very timely for our church. So we're going to kind of think big picture. What is Philippians about? What are some themes throughout the book of Philippians that has caused us to choose this book here right now in the life of Redeemer. This is why this, the title of the sermon is Why Philippians? Why Philippians, right? Why Philippians now for Redeemer Church? And there's all kinds of recurring themes that we could, we could choose from in Philippians. You know, I mean, it just, just depends on who you're reading, depends on how you read Philippians, what themes stand out to you. But there are some common ones that, that we're just gonna talk about today, just three of them, and then we're gonna look at the first two verses in Philippians. Before we get started, before we read the, the, two, the two, first two verses, I, I just wanna challenge us as a church as we move forward through Philippians. If you wanna memorize Philippians, have at it. Feel free, memorize away. I strongly encourage you to be committing scripture to memory. If you wanna do that with Philippians as we work our way through, that's awesome. If that seems a little bit too much for you, like I don't know if I can memorize that much that quickly, I wanna challenge you to read Philippians every day. Now, I don't mean read a verse or two of Philippians. I mean sit down and read the entire book of Philippians. I read through it. It took me about 12 minutes, 12 minutes to read through four chapters in Philippians. Not that long. 
You know, if you don't have a regular Bible reading plan, this is a great time to start one. Here's your plan. Read Philippians every day. It's real simple. As we do that, it's, it's gonna become these themes that we're gonna talk about, I guarantee you they'll jump out at you the more that you read the book of Philippians. So I just challenge us as a church to read it every day. Take 12 minutes and read the whole book of Philippians. Let's begin by reading the first two verses, Philippians chapter one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, today I want to... I want us to think about three themes of Philippians. Then we're going to come back to these two verses that we just read. But here is my first theme that I want us to see in Philippians for the next few months as we work our way through it. Number one, so we're asking the question, why Philippians? Number one, in Philippians, we see joy and encouragement despite difficult circumstances. Joy and encouragement despite difficult circumstances. Now, Philippians is known for being the epistle of joy or the epistle of encouragement. Church, let's talk about joy for a minute. I don't want the word joy to be a throwaway word for us. It used to be that way for me. It used to be when people would say, talk about joy in the Christian life. I would just kind of like, okay, yeah, that's great. What's the next thing, right? Joy just sort of seemed like, not that important. The older I've gotten, I've come to understand that that's faulty thinking. If we're gonna understand what joy is, there is something we must first understand about ourselves, and this is very important for us to know. What you want more than anything is joy. Do you realize that? What you want more than anything is joy. Now, you may not know that's what you want more than anything, but it is. Think about anything else in life you're wanting, whether it be material things, spiritual things, or circumstantial things. The reason you want those things is because you believe they will increase your happiness or joy. Those words aren't always interchangeable, but sometimes they are. And this is not a bad thing to want to be happy, to want to experience joy. In fact, this is the way God has created us. We can't live in this world and operate any other way. There's a guy named Blaise Pascal. He was a French mathematician from the 1600s. He was also a Catholic theologian. This is what he says about this idea of joy or happiness. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception, Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, the object of joy or happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. You see, church, we are all joy seekers. The problem is that we think we will experience lasting, eternal joy in something other than God. That's the biggest problem with us. That's the original inclination behind all of our sin. That's the biggest problem. We think we will find more pleasure, more fulfillment, and more joy in a million other things outside of God. So most humans spend their lives pursuing all kinds of things in order to find this joy. What they end up finding is a lot of temporary happiness. And you can do that. You can do that with your life. Some people end up pursuing joy in very negative, destructive ways that lead to a life of pain and suffering and devastation. Think of drugs, addiction, violence, criminal behavior, sexual promiscuity. But other people find more civilized pursuits. They seek joy in things like possessions, food, their work, their family, maybe even good things like church life or theology. 
But at the end of the day, everyone is the same. Every person is after the same thing, joy. What they end up with is fleeting, temporary happiness. This happiness comes and goes based on circumstances or material possessions and moments of intense pleasure, maybe. But what if you could experience a lasting, unshaking contentment so deep in your soul, so grounded in the truth of Scripture and so rooted in the sovereignty of God that absolutely no external circumstance could take that away from you. Church, that is what we need. And that is exactly what we all want. This is the primary reason why we've chosen Philippians for our church right now. Things have been uncertain and hard. The future might seem unknown. It's always unknown. We don't, we've never known the future, but we just feel it now maybe more than ever. The potential for conflict and confusion and division could be very high. I don't see that happening. I'm so thankful for that, but the potential is certainly there. All these things have the potential to steal our joy or cause us to be driven and tossed around in the sea of uncertainty. But now more than ever, I want us to look to our Heavenly Father for that deep-seated contentment and joy. So how does Philippians help us here? Here's a few passages from Philippians on this idea of joy. Philippians 1, 3 through 5 says this, I thank my God in my remembrance of you. He's talking about the, the church at Philippi. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Next, we have Philippians 1, 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul says. I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Philippians 1, 25. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul saw himself as one working on behalf of their joy. Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some, some translations say without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What's the opposite of joy? It's grumbling, complaining. Church, do you find yourself grumbling and complaining a lot? I know I do. I am, just as Paul says, he's the chief of sinners. I am the chief of grumblers. I, my tendency is to complain and grumble. Philippians has a lot to say to me about that. Again, Philippians 4, 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's joy, right? That's encouragement. I want us to experience this joy more than anything. Because if our joy can be rooted in knowing and enjoying God first, then not only can we experience lasting contentment in the midst of any hardship, but doing something simple like talking to others about Christ will become natural to us. Are you struggling to talk to others about your faith or invite people to church? probably has a lot to do with where you're finding your joy. We talk a lot about what we love and what we enjoy, right? What do you talk about with people that you first meet? Things that are interesting to you, things that you enjoy, things that, you, that get you excited. When our joy is being found in God, we will naturally want others to experience that same thing. What about encouragement? I said, Joy 
and encouragement is my first reason for why Philippians. Church, it's our desire that there would be a culture of encouragement in this church. It's so easy, especially in times of hardship and confusion for us to become unnecessarily critical. Again, I am one of the best at this. Remember what I just said about grumbling and complaining. I am a natural grumbler. I find myself constantly battling a critical spirit, its proclivity to look at all the problems in my life and in our church and in other people. But what I want for me and for us as a church is to develop eyes for encouragement. Some of you here are natural encouragers. There are some of you here that are simply an encouragement to be around. I think of Barb, John Mahan. Anybody ever spend any time with John Mahan? How can you not walk away from that guy just encouraged? Hakeem Jackson, if you're listening on the internet, just know that I, I think Hakeem Jackson is just one of those guys. He's just a naturally encouraging person to be around. Others of you are so good at giving words of encouragement to those around you. You go out of your way to say things that build people up. I've been the recipient of many of those encouraging words over the years and even in recent days. But most of us, especially us men, would probably say we have just a little bit of growth that we need when it comes to encouragement, right? Especially speaking words of encouragement. I'm convinced that the reason we don't speak words of encouragement to one another or even to our spouses or children is simply because we have not developed eyes to see all the good that is happening all around us. We're so consumed with our own little worlds and what's happening to us and our own interests that we don't see how God is moving in the person next to us in the pews. We may not even see it in our own spouses and children. We live with them every day. So we go days and weeks and months and possibly a lifetime giving very little words of encouragement. But Paul, who's in prison, are any of us in prison here? Is anybody on house arrest? But Paul, who's in prison, sees the good in the church at Philippi and he points it out to them over and over in the book of Philippians. Here's just a few examples. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's encouraging, right? God's gonna complete what he started in you, brother, sister, Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's encouraging. God's at work in you. He's gonna bring it to completion. He's willing it and he's working it for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And listen to what he says about Timothy. Now, Timothy's writing this letter with him, okay? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Imagine how encouraging it was for Timothy to hear those words from the Apostle Paul. You know how much, how valuable, how he has proven himself worthy. When's the last time you encouraged someone like that? Brother, I see what you're doing. Here's the good that I'm seeing. I want our church to develop a culture of encouragement We are so prone to point out faults and flaws. And believe me, there is a time, there's a place for that, absolutely. But man, I want the culture of this church to be one of encouragement, pointing one another to Jesus. 
So reason one for why Philippians. Joy and encouragement despite difficult circumstances. Number two, humble Christ-likeness among God's people. This is another theme we see over and over throughout the book of Philippians. We're gonna look at just one passage here, Philippians 2, 3 through 11. This is a famous passage. We're gonna unpack this more when we get here in a couple months He says this, Philippians 2, 3 through 11, do nothing from selfish ambition or or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this passage is called often called the Christ hymn of Philippians. It summarizes, I think, the entire book of Philippians by pointing the reader to the humility and servanthood of Christ and calling us to follow him in that. Paul wants us to look at Jesus and see a fully divine and fully human man, the one who flung planets and stars into existence and who has eternally existed from before the ages began the one who holds all power and authority in heaven and on earth, and yet the one who put off the glory of heaven to come to earth to bear the sin of his people. This is the glory that we get to see in Christ and unpack as we work our way through Philippians. Let me ask you, do you have trouble looking to the interests of others? When you look at your own life or heart, do you see a person who is self-absorbed? Do you find it hard to care about the needs of other people? The answer I have for you and me is the same answer Paul gives us here. Look to Jesus. Meditate on the divinity and the humanity of Christ. We have no better example than to follow him. Humble Christ-likeness is a theme that permeates the book of Philippians. And it's another reason why we have chosen Philippians right now. And third, the third reason of why Philippians. In Philippians, we see a healthy detachment from the world for the sake of Christ. A healthy detachment from the world for the sake of of Christ or mission. Now, notice I say a healthy detachment from the world, not just detachment from the world. We cannot detach ourselves from the world. It's impossible. We should not try to do so. We're not called to escape the world or sell all our possessions and go live in the woods as many Christians have tried to do throughout history. No, we are called to have a healthy detachment from the world for the sake of Christ. And I think we see this in Philippians over and over. Listen to Philippians 1.21, famous passage. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Philippians 2, three through four. We read this one already. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2.17, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You have to be detached from the world somehow if you're gonna say that. If I'm gonna be poured out for you, I, I am glad and I rejoice. Philippians 3.7-8, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And we could look at many more examples of what a healthy detachment from the world looks like. We have to remember that the goal is not simply detachment from the world. It's detachment from the world for the sake of Christ, for the sake of mission. Remember what Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But I cannot tell, which one will I choose? Do I depart to be with Christ or do I stay here on your account? So what's the goal of Paul's detachment from the world? Is it just his own spiritual progress? No, he longs to continue in ministry for their progress and joy in the faith. He gives up his rights and privileges for the sake of the church. His life is one of unyielding commitment to seeing the gospel proclaimed and believed among the nations. And church, we want this to become our focus too, more and more as we move ahead. We want us to be examining our lives for areas where we are too attached to the world. I don't know what that looks like for you. I can't decide that for you. This looks different for different people in different stages of life. But if you ask the Lord, Lord, where, where am I too attached to the world? Where, are my, where is my heart too in love with the things of this world? He will tell you. He will reveal those things to you. He'll help you recognize areas where you are too attached to the world. I want all of us to be willing to hand those things over to Christ so that we would be more able to be used by God for the cause of missions, evangelism, and the care of other people. That's what we see in Philippians, a healthy detachment from the world for the sake of Christ. Now, those are three themes. Those three themes are just three reasons why we have chosen Philippians at this time for our church. All of that is just introduction to the book of Philippians. So now what we're gonna do is take the end of the sermon. It's not not gonna be much longer. We're gonna look at three things from the first two verses of Philippians. Three things. We're gonna see three callings that Paul mentions in the beginning of Philippians. Let's read it again, Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to see is that we are called to a life of service. Paul and Timothy identify themselves as servants of Christ. Now this word servants is not the word for deacon. He uses that word later. It's the word for slave or bondservant. This word implies submission and and commitment. If you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that calling himself a slave of Christ is not hyperbole, okay? He's not exaggerating here. Paul had every reason to quit following Christ, to throw in the towel and walk away. He'd been imprisoned and beaten multiple times for preaching the gospel. He'd been stoned and whipped and shipwrecked. But why didn't he quit? It's because he knew his life didn't belong to him. He belonged to Christ. He saw himself, he sees himself as a servant first and foremost. One who is not deserving of anything good, he knows it, he calls himself a servant. Now, I have no doubt that Paul struggled just like we do. He was a sinner. He had weaknesses. He was prone to wander just like every other person. And still, even after a lifetime of persecution and suffering and pain, he still considers himself a servant. Now, who deserves a title of high status more 
than the Apostle Paul, right? If we, if we think of the term servant in the Apostle Paul, I mean, yeah, we, we could be called servants, right? But Paul, I mean, you need like elder, apostle, bishop, right? Something. I mean, he's up there, right? And yet he identifies himself with those who are lowly and those who are forgotten. Now, how can Paul identify himself this way? How does this work? What, what mentality does he have to have to call himself a servant? Is it because he's a super humble guy? Well, maybe. But it has less to do with his servanthood and more to do with the one he's serving, his master. You see, the biggest reason why anyone would be proud of the title servant or slave is because they are not ashamed of their master. They want to be identified as a slave because they want to be identified with their master. Paul mentions his Lord, Jesus Christ, three times in the first two verses. It's clear that he wants to be identified as a servant of Jesus. What title do you think you deserve? How do you view your calling as a Christian, whatever it is God has called you to right now? When you look at your life, do you feel entitled to some kind of title or recognition or some kind of standing before God? Church, there is so much freedom in viewing our lives as one of service. We often think that if we can just make it to a certain level, in the Christian life, then things will get better and easier, right? I know, I'm a, I know I'm supposed to be a servant in some metaphorical way, but what I'm really called to be is a leader of some kind, an elder or a deacon, which also means servant, by the way. But the Christian life is not about achieving higher and higher levels up the Christian ladder. As Jesus says in Matthew 20, Whoever would be great among you, you want to be great? What's he say? He must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, church, the Christian life is totally backwards from every other area of our lives. In the police world, when you get better at your job, you get promotions. You work your way up. You get a title. You get sergeant, lieutenant, chief. In a business world, CEO, right? You work your way up the ladder. You get titles. You get more experience. You get, you get better on your feet. You get to handle yourself better. You get better at, at understanding how the structure works and, and less dependent upon the people above you, right? That's what it means to excel in almost every other area of our lives, less dependent on other people, less dependent on the person above you, so then you take his job, right? Or her job. The Christian life is backwards. It's the complete opposite. You wanna, get, you wanna go up? You wanna move up in the Christian life? What does that look like? You gotta get low. You got to lose it all. You got to forsake it all. You got you to be willing to throw all of it away and become a servant. Growth in the Christian life is not more independence and in getting out from underneath the help of someone else. Growth in the Christian life is greater and greater dependence upon Christ. That's growth in the Christian life. Paul considered himself a servant. Mothers, how often do you feel tired and worn out or forgotten? Men, how many of you feel like your life is just mundane, isn't amounting to anything, at least not anything important? Those of you who are single and you don't want to be, how often do you get angry about that and wish that God would have dealt you a different hand? Children, do you ever feel like your life isn't fair? That you don't get the good things that you deserve? 
All of us need to understand this truth. If you want to do great things with your life, spend your life serving Jesus. Your life is to be one of service. That's what Paul calls himself, a servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. There's nothing better than being in the service of Christ. You will not regret it. We are all called to a life of servanthood. If we ever start to think that we deserve something good from God or we deserve to be served rather than to serve, we're missing the boat. It's detachment. I'm sorry, churches get off track when the members forget that they are called to pour themselves out in service to one another and those who are in need all around them. Second, what we see in these opening verses is that we are called to be ministers of grace and peace. Paul considered himself a minister of grace and peace. Now, it's easy for us to rush through Paul's greetings, right? When we read Philippians, we're like, okay, Paul, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, all the saints, Christ Jesus, but Philippi, overseas deacons, get it. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, get to the good stuff, right? What do you really want to say to us, Paul, right? We kind of skip over, all right, grace and peace, really common words. We know what they mean. Move on. Let's get to the meat of the letter, right? We don't want to do that. We want to make sure we understand what these terms mean, grace and peace. These are not throwaway words in the Bible. Every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's purposed by God for our instruction. So let's make sure we understand what grace and peace mean. See, Paul and Timothy see themselves as servants who bear the grace and peace of God. It is their mission. It's their job to spread grace and peace. That's what they're saying. Now, what is grace? Well, grace is a major theme throughout the New Testament. We probably know this. You could even say it is the central theme, perhaps, of the entire New Testament. Grace is simply undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. In this context, Paul and Timothy certainly have in mind the grace of God revealed in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They unpack that later throughout the book. But the grace of God that Paul is referring to here is most fully revealed in sending Jesus to die on the cross for sin, sending Jesus to solve the biggest problem in all of humanity. What's your biggest problem? Sin that separates you from God. God has shown us grace by sending Jesus to pay the penalty for that sin so that when he was crucified 2,000 years ago, he actually bore the sin of his people on himself so that anyone who turns from sin in faith to him will have forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. That's the grace that Paul is talking about. That's the grace that he's called to bear. But what about those of us who are followers of Christ? Do you see your life as one to be spent bearing the grace of God? That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, receive grace and peace. Receive grace and peace. I want to give it. I want you to have it from me, from my letter you're about to read. Receive grace and peace. How many of us think about this? daily, that we are meant to be God's agents of grace, speaking grace into the lives of people around us. If you know who Paul Tripp is, he, he, he talks about this a lot when he talks about marriage or parenting. He talks about, you are an instrument in the workshop of God's grace. You are an instrument in the workshop of God's grace. Do you see your life that way? That every day, God has placed you somewhere in your home, in your classroom, in your job, whatever it is, you are there. That is the workshop of God's grace. And you are an instrument in his hands. You are there to exercise grace, to spread grace, to speak 
grace. You ever wonder why you work around so many people that are so unlovable? (laughs) They're so hard to love? They get on your nerves? Those kids that you have to deal with? It's because God has you there to be an instrument of his grace. That's his purpose for you. That's what Paul is saying. We are servants of grace and peace. Now let's go. Let's every day meet the day and say, all right, Lord, (laughs) help me be gracious. I'm, I'm your instrument of grace. What about peace? Well, peace is the result of God's grace. Think about this. What happens when grace is extended? There is some offense, there is some annoyance, there is some, some off-color comment made towards you or someone else in your workplace. What do you do? You extend grace. What is the result of that grace? Peace. No conflict, right? At least that's the hope. Peace is the result of God's grace. When we come to share in the grace of God, how does that change our standing before him? What does Ephesians 3 say about this? He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Apart from Christ, you see, we are all enemies of God. There is no peace between us and God apart from Christ. There is only conflict, okay? We are not cute, helpless, innocent little children. There's nothing for us other than destruction apart from his grace. But what happens after we receive the grace of God? That conflict that was there is laid to rest. The conflict between us and God is put to death and now there is peace. But not only is there peace between us and God, there's meant to be peace among God's people. If peace marks our relationship with God, how much more should it mark our relationship with our brothers and sisters? Christ has broken down every wall of hostility that divides us. He has united us together and called us to a mission of spreading grace and peace. Now, church, peace doesn't just happen naturally, even for Christians. It must be fought for and pursued. It must be guarded and cherished. It takes conscious, concerted effort to live at peace with one another. You see, we we oftentimes think that extending grace just means being nice to each other. That's not extending grace. There's no need for grace if we're all just being nice to each other. Grace is extended when there is an offense that requires it. That takes work, friends. That takes struggle. That takes absorbing that hurt, absorbing that offense to some degree and saying, I'm going to extend grace. That's a hard thing. But this, this must be guarded. If we want peace to reign in our church, if you want peace to reign in your home, grace is necessary. And last, we are called to a life with Jesus. So first we, we saw that we are called to a life of service. Next, we're called to be ministers of grace and peace. And third, we're called to a life with Jesus. Now Paul mentions Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus three times in the first two verses. This should key us into Paul's priorities in writing this letter. Who is this letter really about? Is it about Paul? Timothy? No. Is it about Epaphroditus, who's mentioned later? No. Is it about the Philippians so that they know how wonderful that they, that they are? No. This letter is about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ is mentioned 37 times in this letter. You, you can look at this letter. I mean, it's basically three pages. Three pages. 37 times Paul mentions Jesus Christ. That's over nine times per chapter. This includes deep, theologically rich insights into Jesus' divine and human nature, like we saw earlier. It includes uh, information about what Christ's death and resurrection means for believers. It's the gospel of Christ is mentioned. The glory of Christ is mentioned. The suffering of Christ, the day of Christ, the interest of Christ, the work of Christ, knowing Christ, gaining Christ, faith in Christ, and the list could go on and on and on. Philippians is a Christ-centered letter from beginning to end. Paul, more than anything, wants his readers to view their lives, like I said, as instruments in the hands of Christ. They do not belong to themselves, but they belong to Jesus. It's only in that realization that we find our true joy and contentment, our true identity as God's people and our true calling as servants of our perfect master. Everything Paul says is meant to point us to Jesus as a fulfillment of every need that we have. So we are called to a life of service. We are called to a life of grace and peace and we are called to a life with Jesus Church, I hope you see that we've chosen this book because we believe it is what we need to hear right now in the life of this church. Yes, there are other books that would be good for us to spend time in other letters. All of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. But our hope is that as we make our way through Philippians over the next several months, we will see these three themes that I talked about at the beginning come alive over and over, joy and encouragement in the midst of difficult circumstances, that Christ-like humility would mark our congregation and that we would experience a healthy detachment from the world for the sake of Christ. When we come together for the next three Wednesdays to pray, these are all things we can be praying for. If you're gonna fast this coming Tuesday or Wednesday and you think, what are some things I can be praying for? What's the point of my fasting? Here they are. Here's three things we can be praying for for our church. Joy and encouragement, Christ-like humility and healthy detachment from the world. One last thought even as we think about all the ways we want to change and all the ways that we fail to live up to God's biblical standard. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read joy and encouragement, Christ-like humility and healthy detachment from the world, when when I think about those things, my response isn't, yes, let's get excited. My response is, I don't meet that standard. I mean, there's a lot of areas in my life that are not a healthy detachment from the world. Let's remember one thing, though, that Christ already is all of these things for us. Do you feel like joy and encouragement are elusive and always out of reach? Remember that Christ is still with you. He longs to bless you with joy and encouragement, even if you aren't experiencing it right now. When you think about humility, do you just feel like a failure? Remember that Christ has fulfilled all humility for you. You don't have to be perfectly humble for God to love you. His love has already been purchased for you by Christ. Does it feel like you are more in love with the world than detached from it right now? Does it seem like it has a death grip on your heart and your affections? Well, take heart because Christ has already fulfilled all of that righteousness too. He was the perfect balance of loving sinners and hating sin. He was the perfect balance of living in the world, but not of the world. He was the perfect balance of saying, not my will, but yours be done. And in all of this, 
His righteousness is now yours. So don't be overburdened with fear and impossible expectations today. Let's all pursue holiness together as a church. That's exciting to me. When I think about us as a church pursuing these things together, knowing that our holiness was already bought and paid for by Christ. So let's jump into Philippians with both feet. Let's swim in the deep end and go down here and there to see what treasures lie beneath. But let's also be ready to jump out and take those treasures to our friends and neighbors and even those that would consider us to be enemies. And let's pour our lives out in service to our master, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Philippians. We thank you, God, that in such a short book, four pages, four chapters, we see so much glory. We see so much truth revealed to us, so much conviction to be had, but also so much encouragement and joy. We thank you, God, that your word never fails that we have it, that it gives us the instruction that we need. And Lord, I pray for our church that we would submit ourselves to it weekly, daily. Pray for our families, Lord, that our families will be built on the foundation of of your word. May you work these things in us, joy and encouragement. Lord, let there be a culture of joy and encouragement here. Let there be a culture of of humble Christ-likeness. God, teach us what it means to be humble. And Lord, I pray that you would work in us a healthy detachment from the world, that we would pursue the mission and cause of Christ more than we would pursue our own desires and wants. We would think of others before ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.